When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. Welcome back to the Old Testament. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm thrilled to dive back into the story of Exodus. In fact, dive might be the best word for the day, since we will be jumping into the Red Sea, uh, one of the great moments of scriptural history, or even of cinematic history now that I think of it. Uh, the old 1950s Ten Commandments movie uh, from Cecil B. DeMille. That was, I mean, the days pre-CGI, that was some incredible special effects. Party in the Red Sea. You just picture audiences aghast, like, how did they do that? Well, when the Lord did it, it wasn't special effects, okay? It was, it was a God of miracles. The God of the plagues now became the God of the parted waters. And allowing Israel to move forward, I mean, there's such great symbolism uh, within the Red Sea that here's this boundary separating your past from your future. Will you be able to cross it? Will you be trapped in your old life and never fully be able to be free of it? Or will God somehow open a miraculous way of escape so that you can be fully delivered by him and be able to march forward with faith toward your land of promise? Oh, there's incredible things about the story that we're going to be studying today. Uh, so if we can get past Charlton Heston, which made a great Moses, I'll admit. In fact, I sometimes wonder, I hope Charlton Heston was a good person, a good upstanding moral man, because my age and older, that's what Moses looks like, <laughs> at least in our minds. And so if he only made it to the terrestrial kingdom, I feel bad for anyone else who's there and they're like, what, M not even Moses made it to the celestial kingdom? Man, no wonder we didn't make it either. Well, God, <laughs> Moses definitely made it to the celestial kingdom. I'm hoping Charlton Heston did too. More importantly, I'm hoping that you and I get there. And if we will trust in the God of deliverance, that we're coming to know through these stories in Exodus, then he'll definitely lead us home. The promised land lies ahead. The Mount Sinai with its, with its commandments and laws that are meant to sanctify us. Well, to get there, we're gonna have to cross what seems an, an uncrossable barrier. But with God's help, all things are possible. Now, one other word before we, we jump into the story. Uh, when I was in college, this was one of, the, one of the highlights of my life. I did a semester studying abroad in the Middle East. We lived in Jerusalem for five months, but we went on field trips all over the place, including down to the Sinai Peninsula so that we could hike Mount Sinai. We got to the base of the mountain in the middle of the night and then started hiking in the darkness so that we could be on the top when the sun rose. And it was breathtaking. Uh, didn't need a burning bush. It was an incredible experience. Uh, but on the opposite extreme of the experience was something that happened the day after. We were staying at this kind of hotel sort of thing uh, on the shores of the Red Sea. So how could we not think about Moses parting the waters, right? Well, there was all kinds of stuff going on. We're just having fun there on the, on the shores. And, well, I'll put it this way. I'm a city slicker, uh, but I've always dreamed of like riding horseback into the sunset. And I got my chance there. 
Now, I was, there was this Egyptian family that had a bunch of horses, and they were going around kind of offering rides. I mean, first a little bakshish, a little money, uh, you can do just about anything. And, and this is my chance. I, I can gallop on horseback across down the shores of the Red Sea? This is going to be like Lawrence of Arabia meets the Ten Commandments. It's going to be epic. Uh, well, not quite so much. When I first laid eyes on the horses, I was like, um, should I ride them or should they ride me? Because these are not exactly the sturdy beasts that I had, that I had pictured. Uh, so skinny, like uh, ribs poking out from under the, the, the hide. Well, we jumped on anyway and started to, to ride. In fact, started to gallop. It was exhilarating. Until I realized that I had no control over this horse. I was trying to get it to go to the left, and so I reined in that side, and it turned its head and kept galloping forward. I'm like, that's not how it's supposed to happen. I turned it to the right, and it turned, but kept galloping forward. I finally said, forget this thing, and I pulled the reins in, and it lifted its head up and just kept galloping forward. I thought, this is not how it's supposed to go. Well, it, it's definitely leading the show, and it starts galloping straight toward all of my friends there on the beach. And I'm like, oh great, I'm gonna trample a classmate today. This is not what I pictured. Uh, it veered off thankfully, but then it aimed straight for like this beach uh, volleyball set, uh, the net. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to get clotheslined uh, by this horse. Then it veered off from that and aimed towards a beach umbrella that had a metal ring around the outside uh, to hold things up, and it was right around neck high And I'm like, when I'm on horseback, and I thought, oh, it's going to decapitate me. I'm not liking either option. Trample a friend, get clotheslined on the volleyball net, or get my head uh, decapitated by, by a, a beach umbrella. Well, it finally ran out of steam and stopped. The little Egyptian boy that was following us is like, you want to keep going? I'm like, no, 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 I'm good. I am good. I'm going to get off and quit while I'm ahead, or at least alive, uh, and, and end things. And that was my, my Red Sea experience. Now, the one that Moses and the Israelites were going to have, in some ways felt similar, in terms of there's no good options here. Uh, what, uh, what are we going to do? And yet the miracle that unfolded for them I hope it reassures us of the miracles that await you and me as God is bringing us out of Egyptian bondage and toward a promised land. Oh, good times ahead. So let's begin. Exodus chapter 14. If you remember the end of 13, they're beginning their journey and they have had a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke that has guided them. And about a week into this journey, Chapter 14 begins, verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. Now, I have no idea if I pronounced any of those places correctly, but oh well. I used to joke with my seminary students way back in the day. I'd always have them read verses like that with place names or the names of people in Hebrew and obscure stuff. And they were just squirming like, I don't know how to say this. And I'd always laugh going, well, why do you think I asked you to do it? I don't know how to say it either. That's not the point of scripture. Uh, but what is? Let's see what's happening here. God is guiding them, telling Moses uh, to tell the people, this is how we're going to go along our path. Now, this one's going to seem a little strange, especially to Moses, because Moses has been to Mount Sinai. He's coming back to it. And from then on to a place he's never been, namely the promised land. But if he's been to Sinai, which he has, then he knows this isn't the right way. There's a more direct path to get to the holy mountain. And it's not through these places. 
In fact, we're going to get stuck because we're headed to, we're too far south. We're going to, we're going to hit the Red Sea and not be able to, to progress. Now, evidently, Pharaoh was going to feel the same thing. And so God tells Moses in the next verse, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And evidently, that's what God wanted Pharaoh to think. To me, it's interesting that following the Lord's ways might seem like a dead end to those who are following the ways of the world. If you are seeking prosperity and prestige and power and popularity and all those P's, then following God does seem like you're lost. You're not going to find those things on your journey to which we can say, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not going the world's way. I'm going the Lord's way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so wherever he's leading me, even if it seems like I'm going in circles, in your opinion, or heading in a dead-end direction, so be it. I do love the language, though, as Pharaoh's pondering. They're going to be entangled in the land. They have no idea where they, where they are going or where they are. The wilderness will shut them in. Because the irony is, actually, that describes you, Pharaoh. In your worldly wickedness, talk about a, a wilderness that is shutting you in. You never had the eyes to see what was happening all around you. You never changed and began to follow the Lord in going in the right direction. Entangled in the land, you were so entangled in your own pride, in your own obstinacy, your own hardened heart. Talk about being wrapped up in the cares of the world, even when your world is falling apart all around you. No, if there's anyone entangled, it's being entangled in sin. Anyone shut in, it's not feeling the freedom that can come through the deliverance God offers each of us. Now, in verse 4, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, by now, we should be expecting a JST to fix that. And sure enough, there is one. Pharaoh will harden his heart, that he shall follow after them. And I, the Lord says, will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, that last line should ring some bells, too. How many times did we see it last week? Plague after plague, that they may know that I am the Lord. Well, even ten plagues later, they still don't quite get it. They have forgotten already. And so here's Pharaoh. We should follow after them. What? Are you kidding me? We're finally free of them. Why do you think we gave them all of our jewels? We let them plunder the riches of Egypt. We, I'd just rather survive this whole experience. We barely did. And yet, talk about a dog back to its vomit or a swine, a sow back to it wallowing in the mire. Here's Pharaoh saying, let's, let's hunt them down. Let's follow them. Well, as far as the Lord's concerned, that's fine. I will be honored upon Pharaoh. I will give him one last display of my power. And people will know who I am. In verse 5, it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Seriously? Do you not remember why you let Israel go? Why have we done this? Why would we let them leave? Uh, does Nile turn to blood ring any bells? 
Uh, how about frogs and lice and flies and uh, pestilence, boils, blains, dead cattle? No, none of that ringing any bell? Okay. Um, locusts? There's nothing left in, e in Egypt. Darkness? Surely you remember death. A great cry that went through all of Egypt? Still hanging in the air. In the air. It's still weighing on your heavy hearts. Why, did, why have we done this? Because of everything your unwillingness to let your sins go was doing to you. There's something about sinfulness that brings a certain degree of stupidity with it. Sherry Dew used to say that. Sin makes you stupid. Uh, if, if that's too strong of a word, at least it makes us forgetful. It's what Nephi was saying to Laman and Lemuel all the time. How could you have forgotten so quickly all that God has done for us? In Pharaoh's case, all that God has done to us. No. There, there seems to be... Picture sin like a syringe that Satan is trying to stick into us. Well, there always seems to be a little anesthetic mixed in with the poison. And it's that anesthetic that deadens us to the pain, the consequences of our own poor decisions. And, and that anesthetic also brings a bit of amnesia to the point of it, it's hard for us to remember fully just how bad we had it before we repented. No, we start to wonder, why did I ever change? Why did I say I was never going to do that again? We saw that so many times last week. When things were hard, I'll let the people go. But as soon as the plague passes, what was I thinking? No, you're still stuck. Even to the point of massive death and destruction, and he's still wondering yet again, why would I ever let them go? I hear this sometimes from my wife and son working with addiction recovery patients. There are times where things are so far gone that, and people so forgetful of what they've done to themselves that you almost have to sit them down and say, you're either going to go into recovery or you will die. Uh, there's, you're at that point. And Pharaoh was now at that point, but refused to remember, refused to repent. In verse 6, he made ready his chariot, ready to launch headlong into this. He took his people with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. Makes me wonder where he found all the horses to help guide or to drive all those chariots. Remember back in the plague of hail, it not only destroyed the crops, it destroyed all the flocks and herds. Oh, except for the ones that were brought inside. You remember Moses had told them the night before, this is going to happen tomorrow. And this gives you the opportunity to listen and prepare. In fact, Pharaoh, it'll give you the chance to see just how much control you are losing. Because people who, who bring their animals in obviously trust us more than they trust you. And they fear the God of Israel more than they fear the gods of Egypt. And sure enough, that night, <laughs> Pharaoh's own servants were bringing the animals in to protect them. Well, nothing's going to protect them from what's about to happen. So Pharaoh gathers all these chariots. He's ready to head, head off. In some ways, it's, again, for Israel to be there, trapped uh, in this dead end. No, this is going to be one final blessing for them because you will get to see the final destruction, 
not just of Egypt, you've already been there, done that, but the destruction of the armies of Egypt. Can you imagine the rest of their existence in Canaan, wondering when's Pharaoh going to marshal the troops and come back after us? No, we already saw Egypt destroyed economically. Here they will see Egypt destroyed militarily. And that will bless Israel moving forward. Now verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Nope, JST corrects it. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's always on him. And he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. Sounds like they don't know that they're being followed yet. They're out with a high hand. They're other translations speak of this being going boldly or defiantly. We have finally been freed by a God of deliverance. And here they are marching with head held high. But how long is that going to last? Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued after them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them in camping by the sea. Which, like we're seeing, is exactly what the Lord intended. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. Can't blame them. The children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. So not quite as bold and defiant as they were a verse or two ago. It's no longer their hand they're holding up. It's their, it's their eyes that are looking up, and then their heads that are bowing down, and what's going to happen to us? But they cry unto the Lord. That's a good thing. Or is it? You see, I guess there's two ways to cry unto the Lord. One is out of faith and the other is out of fear. You can cry unto him for help. Or we can cry out in complaint, murmuring about the situation we find ourselves in. Well, based on what you know about Israel, any guesses which of those two options they took? Verse 11, they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? So there they are, imagining a worst case scenario. We're just going to die. And if we're going to die out in the wilderness, we might as well just have died back in Egypt and saved ourselves the trip. What were you thinking, Moses? No graves in Egypt, huh? Wow. This, again, hardened heart. It wasn't just Pharaoh that was guilty of that. Actually, it makes me wonder if Israel had been reduced to such subservience through all of those centuries of slavery that they really didn't see any other option. They didn't see the value of freedom and, and the reward that was worth all of this risk. Where was the give me liberty or give me death kind of courage? It wasn't there. Instead, it was simply a thought of there's nothing we can do now. Talk about washing their hands of it and just kind of fatalistic, we're going to die. And, and there's no avoiding that. In verse 12, they continue their complaint. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Better off? As slaves in Egypt? Are you not remembering what it felt like? To be under the lash of the whip? To be under the all-seeing eye of the, of the overseers? No. Don't you remember crying to God in the anguish of bondage? Why do you think I sent Moses in the first place? I heard your cries then. I'm hearing your cries now. 
I delivered you then. I will deliver you now. Trust me. You are not worse off. You're so much better. But it's interesting what they said. Didn't we tell you, Moses, to just leave us alone? Wow. I'm trying to help and you don't want that help? Yeah, I'm trying to deliver you and you're just, no, just leave us alone. This is starting to sound like codependence. Uh, where you have been reduced to victimhood for so long that you can't imagine any other life out there. And rather than rock the boat and speak out against the, the perpetrator, you'd rather continue to be victimized. That's not faith speaking, that's fear. And that is wanting to be left alone when in reality, you've been begging for a long, long time for deliverance. When Moses did say to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, remember this is near the beginning, when he said, oh, you got all this extra leisure time that you're seeking sacrifices in the wilderness? Oh, I can give you some extra things on the to-do list. Why don't you go find your own straw for the mud bricks? That did make their lives, their lives worse for a while. But what about through all those other plagues when they were in the eye of the storm? You weren't saying to Moses, leave us alone then. When you were marching out of Egypt triumphant, hands held high, you weren't saying, leave us alone then. I think it's interesting that when we feel trapped by sin and we are seeking forgiveness, Lord, remember me. Like Joseph said to the butler, you're getting out. I'm still stuck here. Please help. Please don't leave me alone. But sometimes on the other side of our deliverance, when God begins making demands of our discipleship, or when membership in the church can sometimes be hard, is it then that we start second-guessing ourselves and thinking, I just wish you would have left me alone back in my old life? Well, again, that's part of that amnesia, some of that anesthetic that Satan slips in. Do you not remember how bad you had it then and how desperately you were seeking deliverance? Well, verse 13, Moses responds. He says to the people, Fear ye not. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. I wonder about that last phrase, if Moses is venting just a bit of frustration there. <laughs> Telling me to leave you alone? What? Just hold your peace, will you? Just be quiet for a moment. In fact, stand still and see the salvation of God. This is one of the ultimate halftime speeches <laughs> that you'll find in Scripture. Stand still. See the salvation of God. God will leave you safe, secure, and speechless. Safe is see his salvation. Secure is you'll never see the Egyptian army again. And speechless is hold your peace. What God is about to do for you will be unforgettable. So sit back and grab some popcorn and watch it unfold. This is going to be epic. Now, it's interesting because when Joseph Smith and Zion's camp was trapped against their own Red Sea, uh, the fishing river, uh, they'd come down to redeem Zion and 
they were being pursued by enemies, and it's a lot like what's happening here. And at a certain moment of great alarm, Joseph Smith basically channels his inner Moses and quotes this. He says to Zion's camp, stand still and see the salvation of God. And they did, and he did. He revealed his salvation. There was a storm like they'd never seen, and the waters came down at such intensity that the fishing river rose to a point to protect the, the camp of Israel. Well, what's interesting about this story, the original in Exodus, is it doesn't quite go according to Moses' plan. Here's the irony. We, we always, we quote that verse, stand still and see the salvation of God. I think, yeah, there you go, Moses, pump up speech. There we, we got it. But that's not how the Lord responds to it. In fact, notice the next verse. The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. He just totally did an about face on Moses. It, I mean, Moses is full of faith and says, Brethren, come on, we can do this. Stand still, look at God. And he looks to God and then God's like, What are you looking at me for? Where else am I supposed to look? Well, look at the people. Uh, I don't want to because they don't really look very happy with me right now. Well, be that as it may, why on earth would you tell them to stand still? No, you've got to move forward. Tell them to keep on going. Now, it's interesting here because Moses, Moses got the right promise. He just didn't get the right process. In other words, he knew the destination, but he didn't understand correctly the direction. Let me see if I can explain this. Was God going to deliver them that day? Yes. Was that were they going to no longer see Egypt anymore forever? Yes. And Moses was filled with that reassurance, and so he expressed it. He reassured the people. But how was it going to come? By standing still and letting God do all the work? No, Moses. That's not how it's going to come. I will give you success. But you're going to have to join me in the work here. You see, this is another contrary to prove, like is always the case. Between agency and inspiration, between how much God does and how much we do, it's this tension between stand still and see the salvation of God versus be anxiously engaged in a good cause and bring to pass much righteousness because the power is in you. You're an agent unto yourself. We're always caught between those two poles. And there are times where we're thinking we have to do it all ourselves. And that's when God says, no, you need to stand still and see my salvation. And there's other times where we are standing still and we're like, we're waiting for the salvation to unfold. And he's like, no, actually, you need to get in involved here. It's why Jacob said, because of faith and great anxiety, there's the great uh, combination there, great, wonderful contrary to prove. Moses is expressing his faith. Uh, maybe he needed a little more of the anxiety that the people shared. I'm sure he's feeling it. But the anxiety to do something himself, to tell the people to do something themselves. Like I said, depending on how you're wired, uh, if you're more the anxious type, then lean into your faith. If you're more the faith, but I'm just gonna, God's going to take care of it without me, then lean more into your anxiety. Moses, I love that he has the faith to just stand there and watch God work, but that wasn't the marching orders for that moment, which is why we always need to be open to the Holy Ghost. 
even when he offers us some course correction, gentle or otherwise. Uh, in this case, notice verse 16, Lift thou up thy rod, stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So that is what, <laughs> that, that answers Moses' question, which would have been, what do you mean go forward? Where are we supposed to go? We got surf on one side and sand on the other and soldiers coming off in the distance. And it was like me on the horse, right? There's three options here and they're all bad. Uh, trample my friends or get decapitated or clotheslined. Well, what are we going to do? Do we drown or die? Because I'm not seeing any other options. Well, the Lord just gave him the other option. The only problem is it's an impossible one. What, divide the sea? <laughs> just go through on dry ground. Seriously? Well, yes, seriously. What I love about this is God, who does the impossible, is giving Moses his impossible command. It's like, come on, Moses. <laughs> Since when have I been telling you things that make any sense logically? Uh, turning the Nile to blood, now that wasn't natural causes either. Haven't you had 10 rounds of reassurance that I do the impossible? Trust me. Tell the people to move forward. It actually reminds me of, of Peter walking on water. There's some beautiful similarities here. Because you're not supposed to be able to walk through water on dry ground, nor are you supposed to be able to walk on top of water. Either way, you're crossing water miraculously. But think about it in the Peter example. It might shed some light on the Moses one. Because in Peter's version, we always get this wrong. We always think that it was Jesus testing Peter's faith and saying, Peter, come out and walk out to me. But it wasn't Jesus' suggestion. It was Peter's. It was Peter's idea. That blows me away every time I read it. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is walking on the water as if he's going to pass the boat that the apostles are in. And they look out and they're freaked out because they think it's a ghost or a spirit of some sort. And then somebody recognizes what they think. No, I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. And Peter, not knowing for sure, comes up with a way of confirming the identity. He says, If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. I love that it's Peter's idea. And with that question, if it's really you, how will I recognize that? I'll know it's you if you ask me to do the impossible and then make it possible. <laughs> I love that about Peter. Lord, I'll know it's... That's how we know. Because the Lord's constantly asking us to do impossible things. That was Moses of the burning bush. Go free Israel. Go take the snake by the tail and put your hand in your bosom and come out fine and just do it. 18, 19 year olds, go out serve a mission. Uh, people overwhelmed, take on this calling and serve. Just go make a difference in the world. How can I? Okay. That's how I know the call's coming from you because you empower me and allow me to do things I never could have done without thy help. I remember when my father was called to be a patriarch. <laughs> he gave us the news and I said, Dad, I hate to add to your burden, but man, I'm scared enough for both of us. I can't imagine a more intimidating calling. Some stranger walks in, you're supposed to lay your hands on their head and tell them more about themselves than even they know? Whew, good luck, Dad. And he just smiled and he said, yeah, I can understand why you might feel that way. 
And I was like, oh, why I feel that way? <laughs> Which means you don't feel that way? Okay, yeah, that's why you're the patriarch and I'm not. That's one of his great spiritual gifts. To do the impossible. In fact, he let me see the instruction manual for patriarchs once. It was wild. It's so, like, razor thin. Uh, and most of it's about, like, logistics. Like, make sure there's batteries in the <laughs> tape recorder. And this is where you send it in when it's done. And... I mean, the actual instructions on how to give the blessing are in some ways are, are no different than those briefest of instructions on Melchizedek priesthood blessings in general. It's like, here's the steps. State the person's full name. State the authority of your priesthood. Pronounce their tribal lineage. That's different. And then in the Melchizedek blessings, when it says pronounce a blessing as the Spirit directs, in patriarchal blessing instruction, it says, make prophetic pronouncements upon the head of the recipient. And then, step five, close in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking at that going, oh yeah, of course. I mean, it's so simple. Just be prophetic. Make prophetic pronouncements. I mean, if this was all fake, it would say something like, make very vague and easily generalizable statements that can be interpreted in a million different ways. No, it's be prophetic. And trust that through the power of the Holy Ghost, the recipient will recognize those prophecies as they unfold throughout their lives. It's amazing. This isn't the psychic hotline. This isn't Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers. These are patriarchs of God. In this case, Moses, this, you're a prophet of God. So go do something prophetic. Part the waters. Do the impossible. Well, he's about to, but before he gets there, a few more verses, 17. I, behold, I, the Lord says, will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Well, keep an eye out for the JST. There it is. Nope. The hearts of the Egyptians shall be hardened, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There's that phrase that keeps coming up. Among people who just don't know him, allow me to introduce myself. Before this, I was introducing myself through destruction. Now you will see me through deliverance. You Egyptians on the shores of the Red Sea, watching it part before you. Whoa, there is a God <laughs> that I either want to be on his side or I don't want to be on his bad side. I think I'll turn tail and go back home. Well, they don't. We'll see that in a moment. But verse 19 the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. So here you kind of, in military maneuverings, okay, you have, remember last time the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke was leading Israel through the promised land? Well, this time it does kind of an about face and comes around to the back. And I think that's worth realizing that God can do. There's the great verse in Isaiah where he says, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Now that last word is what we're seeing take place here. God becomes their rearward. It's one thing to know that God will lead us where we need to go. It's another thing to believe and trust that God has our backs also. There's a phrase we sometimes use. God, he's got your back. He is your rear word. So often we picture the enemy in front of us or the goal in front of us and God's going to get us, uh, get us there. 
But sometimes we are being pursued by enemies that we might not even know about. God can protect us even from our blind spots. Or perhaps though we are being chased down by enemies we are aware of, and, but we don't know how to escape them. God can deliver us from those too. If it's bills you can't pay, or concerns you can't resolve, or help that you can't, you can't offer, whatever it might be that is tailing you, the consequences of sin are always tailing us, chasing us down. Well, even for those, God can be our rearward. And so I just love this mental image of the cloud and the fire changing position. And now I'll be on that side, since that seems to be your greater fear. The first was, I don't, I don't know where to go. Will you guide me? Okay, well, here I am at the Red Sea. I don't know how to go forward, but I'm scared to death of what's back. Oh, well, then let me take care of that as well. That great verse in section 84 that I will be on your right hand and on your left and I will go before your face and angels round about you to bear you up. There is no angle that God cannot come to your aid, no matter where the enemy might be coming from. Well, in verse 20, it, namely that pillar of the cloud, came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to these, the Israelites, so that the one came not near the other all the night. The truth really is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It condemns the wicked and preserves and protects the righteous. And that's what's happening here. Remember, it's a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire, and so it can provide both shade and illumination. And it's interesting that on the one side, the Egyptian side, it's all darkness. Trapped, frozen in fear, we can't move forward. On the other side, even at night, it is light. Even in this moment of darkness, of great alarm, the light of God is shining through. And so, verse 21 the miracle begins. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Now the verse continues, but pause there and get into the mind of Moses. And what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you hoping? What are you fearing? I'm doing this. Am I really doing? Okay, I'm doing this. And he lifts his hand. He's holding the rod and he's staring out at the sea. Now, there have been scholars for years that have been fighting over this. Uh, usually it's between people who believe in miracles and people who don't. <laughs> so sadly their premise usually determines or predetermines their conclusion. And some say, well, it, it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. Just they'd lost an E. That's not just the English we're dealing with. Uh, the, the Hebrew suggest, well, maybe it was Reed Sea. Okay, that's the Hebrew, but the Septuagint describes it as the Red Sea. Stephen, from the book of Acts, recalls it as the Red Sea. Hmm, well, how far south is this? I mean, the Red Sea is pretty wide, uh, but further north, uh, with the Sinai Peninsula poking out into it, you have the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. That's still Red Sea, technically. Uh, further north beyond that, again, where's this Sea of Reeds? Is it just kind of soggy marshland? They're walking through the edge of a lagoon somewhere, and it was just a little drier that day because it 
because the wind blew that night? Is that all it is? Now again, the, the controversy sometimes is simply a matter of do you believe in miracles or not? Uh, where's your faith in all of this? As far as the account is concerned, it was deep enough to create walls of water on left and right. It was deep enough for Egyptians, the Egyptian army to drown, to be swallowed up in it, which seems more than just wading through a marsh. There is something powerful going on. There is something miraculous. And I guess it wasn't just Egypt, excuse me, it wasn't just Pharaoh or his magicians that were trying to explain things away and find natural explanations and, and empirical cause and effect. Well, there's a cause here, uh, but the cause is divine and the effect is miraculous. Moses has to know this, like waters just don't part. How do I do this? But he stretches out his hand. Now, this is where you need to pause before the miracle actually unfolds and get a little help from the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 8, it describes the spirit of revelation. Remember early Doctrine and Covenants? They need to understand how God speaks to his children. And so there's lots of revelations about revelation, 6 and 8 and 9. Well, in section 8, listen to what Joseph and Oliver Cowdery are taught. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Oh, great. We could have stopped there. That's how it works. Revelation is, is thoughts and feelings. Okay? We saw that with Joseph Smith with James 1.5. It hit him in the heart like nothing before, and he reflected on it again and again. Okay? There's so many examples in Scripture, especially Doctrine and Covenants, where head and heart are firing on both cylinders, and that is God trying to get your attention. Uh, in some ways, the burning bush provided the heart side of things where there's this feeling, there's this burning, this warmth. And then as he turned aside to see, to see, to think, to ponder, the mind kicks in and here comes the voice of God. Well, in this case, we could have stopped right there and go, okay, revelation is mind and heart. But the Lord goes on in the next verse. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. There's the definition and then here's his illustration. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now that blows my mind and my heart. Okay, this is revelation for us all. That's how it happened? Of all the places uh, or all the scriptural examples I would have assumed that would fit the definition of just a mind, just a heart, a thought in his head, a feeling in his heart, and he, and he moved forward. I don't think I would have picked Moses at the Red Sea as my example. I mean, whenever we think of it, or at least watch the movie versions, it's always like some, some booming bass voice from the heavens where God is saying to Moses, you shall do my wonders. Well, according to th that verse, section 8, it wasn't like that. It was so much simpler, stiller and smaller, that voice. It was a thought in Moses' mind, accompanied by a feeling in Moses' heart to move forward. Now, let's revisit what we've just studied then. Uh, was it, again, a vocal sort of a thing? Or was it a booming voice from above that, Moses, what do you mean, stand still and see my salvation? No, you need to move forward. I wonder, right then, is it instead of... He's feeling reassurance on one hand, but then all of a sudden he has like kind of this pit in his stomach and this, 
this feeling in his heart, like, I don't know if I just gave them the right advice. I'm feeling good that God will preserve us. I know that. Uh, and that's probably some heart reassurance and some head logic, like God didn't lead us out into the wilderness to have us die here. I'm not going to go down the path that they just did. I'm not going to murmur about that. I know God better. So logically, there's no way that we're going to die. Okay? So maybe that's his head saying, um, okay, we're not going to die here, so what's going to happen? Well, logically, then God's going to have to step in. And he'll preserve us and destroy them just like he did back in Egypt with those plagues, of course, logically. But then his heart kicks in, and it's this uneasy feeling like, I think, I think we're actually supposed to do something here. Well, what could that be? And as he's second-guessing or revisiting that revelation, right, what is, I know the, the end goal is right. God will preserve us. How are we going to get there? And then, according to section 8, mind, heart, will part the waters. Go divide the sea. Go forward. Don't look at God to do the work. Look at Israel to march forward. Now, is that just a thought in his head? Makes me wonder, because back in Moses 1, we studied at the beginning of our year, he's told something really fascinating. Moses 1 verse 25, the Lord says to him, Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the, the Almighty, have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. Now, that definitely proved true in the case of the Nile turning to blood. But I wonder, as he's standing there on the shores of the Red Sea with sand and surf and soldiers, like I said, does that verse pop back into his head? Does that thought, does the Spirit bring to mind, to your remembrance, all things I have said unto you? That's what Jesus said he would do in John 14. Does, does that promise pop back in and like, wait, God told me I have power over water, that it would obey my voice as if I were God? Well, I'm feeling uneasy about just standing here and letting God take care of everything. I'm feeling like we need to move. And the only direction we can move is into the water itself. But if... No, that's crazy. That's totally crazy. But then this feeling comes. I will speak to the mind and the heart. That's revelation. That's how Moses part of the Red Sea. Here's the thought. The feeling of just, no, that's right. That, I can do this. The Lord has made his promise and I trust him. I believe. So not here goes nothing. Here goes everything. Here goes all my faith and all my hope and all my belief. My mind is fixed on this promise. My heart is filled with the reassurance that it will work. And so Israel, we're moving forward. And I raise my hand with the rod of God. And what begins? Verse 21 continues. Then the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Later in history, they always talk about the east wind as a bad thing. It's this hot, dry air blowing in from the Arabian Peninsula, the desert. Well, this time, this wind saves them as it parts the waters. 
And verse 22, the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Uh, seems a little deeper than just some marshland. Now, if you remember just a few verses ago, there was a wall of fire that was keeping Egypt at bay, protecting the Israelites. And now as they're parting, going through the Red Sea, it is a wall of water on either side, protecting them from drowning, from destruction. So what is it that protects us? Walls of water and walls of fire. That we are surrounded by these things. We are submerged in these things. Hmm. Baptism of water and of fire. That really is what, what ultimately delivers us. The atonement of Christ made manifest through those ordinances. Here is the covenant path that I am carving out for you. Oh, water and fire indeed. There's something else there too within that understated phrase. Oh yeah, the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. <laughs> I don't think it's just Moses exercising faith here. Can you imagine the courage of like, are we really doing this? Um, I don't know how long I can trust the surface tension of these vertical walls of water. There's actually a really fascinating midrash, which is commentary on, on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's a, a, a figure in, or character in, this, in the story. Uh, we don't see him here, but he's really important later on. Uh, his name is Naashon. He's a descendant of Judah. He's actually in Jesus Christ's family tree. He's named in Matthew 1. He is the brother-in-law of Aaron, uh, a leader of the tribe of Judah. In fact, one of the first people to give offerings and sacrifice. Yeah, we'll see that a little bit later on. Now, that's all we do know of him from Scripture. But according to Jewish Midrash, so this is commentary on commentary on commentary. Uh, call it tradition, if you will. We don't have any evidence of his identity in this, or we don't have any evidence of this story in, in the Old Testament. But according to this tradition, when Moses is standing there with arms outstretched and the rod of God, and the water hasn't yet parted, and he's telling them, go forward, <laughs> with God's uh, thoughts ringing in his mind and in his heart. Move forward. And you picture the Israelites going, move forward into what? Uh, the water hasn't parted yet, uh, and it can't. There's no way. Well, according to this Midrash, it is Naashon who starts wading into the water. Now, we do have an example of this coming up in the book of Joshua when the Jordan River is parted. But it doesn't start to part until the feet of the priests are in the water. They have to get wet first because faith precedes the miracle. And you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Well, in this commentary on this story, the belief is among the ancient Jews was that Naashon is the one that exercises that faith and gets his feet wet and then his legs wet and then his torso wet, and then his neck wet. And according to this story, as it's told by the ancient rabbis, he just keeps walking until the water gets up to his nostrils. Even his name is a play on the word for stormy sea. 
and then the waters part. How deep are we willing to wade into our dilemmas? Trusting that God will come through. Even if it's the 11th hour, even if it's the fourth watch, even if it's our darkest day, deliverance will come. We just have to believe. We have to have faith. We have to march forward. And, and whether it's exactly as those rabbis described with this heroic figure willing to wade into the sea. I don't know what, guys, you guys are taking it so long. Moses said, move forward, and we're, I'm going to do it. Uh, whether it was nostril deep or not, there's something beautiful about that story. And like I said, we do have evidence of that principle illustrated in the book of Joshua. In verse 23, then, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots, his horsemen. Now, if it were me, I think I'd just rein my horses in and hold back and go, are you kidding me? Uh, if I ever doubted the power of the God of Israel, uh, those doubts have evaporated. Uh, that strong east wind did a lot with water, and my doubts are gone. Uh, there's, this is impossible. In some ways, God has opened a path for them, and I have to ask myself, am I worthy to follow them into it? Because this is a miraculous way, and I better be willing to follow the God of miracles. Well, they don't have that faith. They don't have that worthiness to walk, but they march in they've headlong verse 24 it came to pass that in the morning watch the lord looked unto the host of the egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the egyptians and took off their chariot wheels that they drave them heavily so that the egyptians said let us flee from the face of israel for the lord fighteth for them against the egyptians we're actually going to see similar problems later on in the books of kings where chariots which put you at such a military advantage become a military disadvantage because of the, the way the Lord levels the playing field. Uh, in this case, the chariot wheels are, are falling apart, and it's, it's going to slow them down. I honestly wonder if God isn't just trying to give the Israelites time to get across the Red Sea, but also time to slow down this headlong rush toward destruction on the part of the Egyptians. Think about this, men. Do you understand what you're getting yourself into? Do not follow in places that you're not worthy to go. Well, verse 26, the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. And so he did. Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, but it's too little too late. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. How many times did we see a similar phrase last week? After plagues ended and things got back to normal for a time, no more frogs, they're all gone. No more flies. Every last one is, has been removed. Not a single locust left. Well, in this case, there's no more Egyptians. Nothing from your past can come back to haunt you anymore. 
And can you imagine the peace that Israel would feel? The army's gone. Our oppressors have been swallowed up in this sea. And they can never pursue us again. We are finally free. I, I, to think of that, that Red Sea behind you, on the one end, it was the obstacle ahead that you could never cross. And so it becomes this negative symbol. And what am I going to do? There are challenges I just can't surmount. There are problems in my life that I'll never get through. And yet with the help of God, he parts the waters. He opens the way and you overcome them. But then on the other side of them, the Red Sea becomes a new symbol. Because now it has washed away your past until none of it is left. At least none of the bad parts. Isn't there something powerful about repentance and forgiveness? That through the atonement of Jesus Christ, our past is completely behind us. It's all washed away. And nothing we've done in the past will ever hold our future hostage. We are clean. Again, the water symbol there is so powerful. Now, I want to dwell on that symbol just a little while longer. Like we saw last week, symbolism is so powerful. We saw it with the Passover, right? But when we were talking about leaven and realized that in the New Testament, Jesus uses leaven as a good thing. It rises. It helps growth. But in that moment, it's being used as a bad thing because it causes decay and death. There's sin. So be careful when it comes to trying to interpret symbolism. Okay? I often tell my students that uh, logic will help you and truth elsewhere in Scripture that's taught clearly, that will help you too. Think about everything you know about a symbol, an object, and if you come up with some kind of symbolic interpretation that completely contradicts Scripture elsewhere, then you were wrong. Back that one. Okay? But if it's logical and if it's meaningful and it helps you understand or appreciate the truth more, then you're right. There's more uh, interpretations than one. Well, again, is the Red Sea a good thing or a bad thing symbolically? Well, depends on which side of it you're on. It can be an obstacle that only God can help you overcome, or it can be a washing away of past problems and marking a line that you never have to cross again, and you can march forward to your promised land. I was actually thinking about one other element about that Red Sea as a as a good thing. Because uh, there's, there, okay, I'll put it this way. There is this British poet, Matthew Arnold. He lived in the 19th century, around the same time as Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. He's in England, and it was a period of great faith loss in Victorian England, as well as America at the same time. In some ways, the Lord timed the restoration perfectly because it was re-injecting faith into a world that was starting to lose its hold on it. Well, Matthew Arnold was realizing that, and he wrote a beautiful poem called Dover Beach, in which he talks about the sea of faith, and he describes it at kind of at low tide. These are his words. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Maybe because I study faith and doubt all the time. 
maybe because I spend so much time working with people in faith crisis. I couldn't help but think of the Red Sea as the sea of faith. Do I have the faith to enter it? Do I have the faith that it will part when it needs to? But then I started thinking about it from Pharaoh's perspective. Because as Matthew Arnold describes, the sea of faith is withdrawing. It's, in lo it's at low tide, which allows the armies of Egypt to advance. And all of a sudden I pictured Pharaoh and his army almost like doubt personified. And as they see the sea of faith ebb and withdraw, that's when they come marching, rushing forward. Because we can draw back to us, to our side, those that have, that have pursued faith on the other side. And as I pondered this, this the withdrawing roar and what we're up against in a world that is increasingly secular, increasingly hostile to faith. It is this, the Red Sea is, is flowing back. The sea of faith is on the wane. But the water comes rushing back. And so does the, the sea of faith. Study your history, and after almost every period of spiritual decline, there comes a period of religious revival, of resurgence. And as I pictured Pharaoh thinking, yep, this is our chance. The sea of faith is on the decline, and we can rush forward. Our doubts can begin to spread and gobble up whatever particles of faith we once had. But wait for it, because the sea of faith will come rushing back. Elder Maxwell jokes that what an irony that the so-called post-Christian era will come to an end with the coming of Christ. And all of your old doubts will be swallowed up in a sea of faith. If you're in a moment of low tide, if you're worried about the flow of faith among family and friends, trust that the God of Israel will still bring the, the sea roaring back. I have seen it. I saw it in Matthew Arnold's day. I've seen it in our own. And to picture oh, all of those lingering doubts washed away until there is not so much as one of them. No, that doesn't mean that every question will be answered easily or every, every issue resolved. But it does mean that you have seen, you don't stand still on this one, but you have seen the salvation of God. You have seen miracles in your life. He has reached out even to you. He's brought you through it. He's gotten you to the other side. And Sinai awaits in the distance and promised land beyond that. And what's become of your doubts? They are swallowed up in a spiritual security. It's the, the knowledge of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that stormy, turbulent Red Sea waters has now returned with peace be still. I don't know. There's something to this I, I want to keep pondering. I invite you to do the same. How is your sea of faith? Low tide, high tide, what's it doing to your doubts? Letting them spread? or washing them away. Beautiful, beautiful stories. 
in verse 29. Let's get back to the text. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. So again, there's that permanent deliverance, that proof that our past is now behind us and will never follow us forward. Then verse 31, the chapter ends, Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord. They didn't have to fear Pharaoh anymore. And this kind of fear is the good kind, the reverence, the awe. They believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They went from murmuring against him to believing all that he said, which only begs the question, how long is this going to last? Do you believe out of true conviction or simply out of momentary relief that your problems are no longer pursuing you? We'll see which one it is in just a moment. But the way Exodus 15 begins is glorious. Verse 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Now there's some glorious pronouns there. He hath triumphed. He hath thrown Pharaoh into the sea. This is God's victory, more than Moses's, more than ours. He's behind all this. Is, am I coming to know him? Am I coming to trust him? In fact, is that knowledge and trust getting so deep that it can only come out in song? They're not just saying it, they're singing it. It can't be said, it can't even merely be shouted. This one has to be sung. And there's something, again, visceral, something so deep where you just break out, not just in cheering, but in full-on song. You remember the song, How Can I Keep From Singing? It describes it well. My life flows on in endless song, above earth's lamentation. I hear the real, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. And that's what Israel is getting, a new chance, a new beginning. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Through all the tumult and the strife, and they've been feeling a lot of that with Pharaoh pursuing them, I hear the music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? While though the tempest loudly roars, I hear the truth, it liveth. And though the darkness round me close, songs in the night it giveth. Can you picture that describing the night of light they saw before they crossed the ocean? The tempest loudly roaring, but the truth spreading forth? The song goes on. When tyrants tremble in their fear and hear their death knell ringing, Pharaoh should have heard it long before. When friends rejoice both far and near, how can I keep from singing? In prison cell and dungeon vile, our thoughts to them are winging. When friends by shame are undefiled, how can I keep from singing? All oh, those lyrics are surprisingly appropriate, considering all that Israel has just gone through. But listen to their song. 
Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We're seeing Hebrew poetry here. This is a good place to practice in preparation for the book of Isaiah which is almost nothing but Hebrew poetry. There is there this repetition of ideas where something will be said and then echoed and echoed. Did you catch it there in verse 2? The Lord is my strength and song. As a result, He has become my salvation. Let's repeat the idea. He is my God. As a result, I will prepare Him an habitation. Oh, this is a temple text. We'll see more of those. Let's repeat the idea. My Father's God, that's who He is. As a result, I will exalt Him. I know who He is, and this is how I respond. Oh, it's beautiful to see them feeling that so deeply that it, it comes rushing out of them. In verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. And each time Lord is mentioned there, yep, there's those four letters. There's Yahweh. This is the great I am. In verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Again, can you sense the poetic parallelism? The same idea echoing, being repeated. And the glorying over one's enemy. Yeah, we don't do that quite so much in our poetry anymore. Uh, we're a kinder, gentler day, I hope. But that was common at the time period. I mean, you read the Iliad, for example, and it's pretty, I mean, it rejoices in, in bloodshed over one's enemies. And you're seeing some of that here. And I guess the closest we come is when we play, we are the champions at the end of a hard-fought victory. <laughs> okay, it's some basketball or football game. Well, they are glorying in God over the victory he's given them. In verse 6, thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Here's the repeat. And then the echo. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. The right hand is the covenant hand. And here God is keeping his promise. His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their seed, sands of the sea, stars of heaven, will be redeemed and brought back to their land of promise. It's happening as they speak. Better yet, as they sing. God's right hand is coming through. Verse 7, In the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. Stubble is what's left after harvest. After you've gathered out the good grain, and all that's left is the stubble. And the field, once white, all ready to harvest, is now ready to be burned. The house of Israel, the good grain has been gathered, the mixed multitude that desired to go with them, and all that's left behind consumed as stubble. In verse 8, with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. Maybe Naashon wasn't the only one that waded into the water up to the nostrils. Maybe God was there right alongside him. And there the blast of his nostrils blew away the sea. The floods stood upright as an heap. The depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. Don't forget that in Hebrew, wind and breath and spirit are all the same word. You remember the waters covered the, the chaos of the deep in creation, and then God 
spake, he breathed, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, bringing order out of chaos, land out of sea. Same kind of thing is happening here, a new creation. Moses almost as a new Adam, just like Noah had been a new Adam, bringing the house of Israel forward. In verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. How's that for pride going before the fall? Can you picture Pharaoh saying each of those phrases? I'll pursue, and he did. I'll overcome. Well, he didn't. I'll divide the spoil. There'll be no spoil to divide. My lust, that can also be translated my soul, but I like the way the King James went with that. My lust, these appetites, these desires, this hardened heart, I cannot let them leave. I'll draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. No, but the pit you digged for your neighbor, you will fall into it yourself. Thinking that the sea of faith was at an ebb and that you could pursue them no, it came rushing back and washed you away. Verse 10, we're back to God. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. <laughs> yes, they talked big, but God was bigger. In 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Whether that's the gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan or the gods of anywhere else. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises? Another way to say that is awesome in glory, doing wonders. This is the incomparable God. And so poetry often tries to, it can go beyond prose because it leans into the non-literal. It, it invokes feeling, emotion. It seeks symbol and figurative language. It, it's just trying to expand our understanding of something. Things that are beyond our, our grasp. And what's happening here is the poet, the singer, is asking the ultimate question. I'm running out of good analogies. I can't think of a symbol that's glorious enough to describe God. So who is like thee? Even someone as eloquent as Isaiah himself has to deal with that question twice. In Isaiah 40, to whom then will ye liken me? The Lord asks him. Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Later in Isaiah 46, again the Lord asks his prophet, To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me that we may be like? You understand the dilemma? Twice he asks Isaiah, in all his eloquence, What can you possibly use to compare to me? I'm curious to see what language you'll come up with, Isaiah. I think Isaiah did an amazing job, by the way. But even he knows something is lost in translation from the experience of partaking of the fruit, of tasting God in his glory. What will you possibly use to describe me? Mere words will be insufficient. Even the best of analogies will fall short. No wonder Israel went with song. Art, music, dance, the humanities, there are things that reason alone will never be able to capture when it comes to the things of God. So they keep on singing. Verse 12, thou stretchest out thy right hand. The earth swallowed them. There's his covenant hand again. 
13. Thou in thy mercy hath led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. In that verse, he mentioned mercy as well as strength. Did we see them both? He brought them out with a mighty hand, but it was his merciful hand that also guided them. It speaks of being led and redeemed and guided. He's doing all of those things. And it ends with his holy habitation, another temple text. That's what we're aiming for. In verse 14, the people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. That's where they're headed. And as they go to conquer Canaan, yes, those on the wrong side of these covenants will be afraid and sorrow. Those who oppose God, whereas those who join him, whatever mixed multitude that might be, will find joy and find reassurance. In verse 15, Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab, trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. And those were all nations that Israel would have to pass through on their way to the promised land. Nations that were connected in a way to Israel, but nations that were not connected to the covenant. Edom is Esau, right? Sold the birthright. Moab comes through Lot and his daughter. There's a, a story that we don't want to revisit. And Canaan is the son of Ham. And we remember what happened there as well. And so again, here are nations, groups, that did not fully open themselves to the blessings of God. And here they will be amazed. They'll melt away as true Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come marching in. In verse 16, fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till thy people pass over which thou hast purchased. We are purchased people. We are peculiar people. Peculiar to him. It doesn't mean strange. Peculiar to him. In other words, he owns us. He has purchased us. We are bought with a price, Paul says. And that price was redemption. The price of the firstborn was the firstborn one of God. And so there's Passover symbol. Thy people will pass over. They passed over the Red Sea. They'll, they'll pass over their enemies. They will come to the promised land. All because of the Passover lamb himself that made it all possible. Verse 17, thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. If you'd missed the temple references earlier, it, they become pretty obvious in 17. The mountain, the inheritance, the place where you will dwell in your sanctuary. We're going to learn about the tabernacle in just a few weeks, and they're already being pointed forward in that direction. In verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Sound like the hallelujah chorus, uh, Handel's Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. They're singing about this already. This is rejoicing. Verse 19, for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And thus the song of Moses comes to an end. 
Now, personally, I would have ended it one verse earlier. I would have preferred to, to end with, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever in Handel's Messiah version. But they did have to guess, kind of squeeze in one last dig against the enemy. I guess you can forgive them after 430 years of bondage. Uh, that Yes, we won and Egypt lost. Well, verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, and of course the sister of Moses as well, took a timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. Oh, good old Miriam. We haven't seen her in a while. She's been here the whole time. She was there watching from afar off to make sure her baby brother oh, had his, his rendezvous with destiny. Here's, here she is singing the praises of God who has delivered them. Here's not just the sister of the prophet, but a prophetess in her own right. And this peculiar people that God has claimed as his own, that's his intention for everyone. Kings and queens priests and priestesses, in fact, prophets and prophetesses, and Miriam, and all these women. Remember the first week we met Moses, surrounded by women delivering the deliverer. Well, now the deliverer has finally delivered all of them, and they are singing and dancing about it. Verse 21, Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Now that's a repeat of verse 1. So the end of this song just brings you back to the beginning of the song. Is it meant to be repeated? Is it a chorus sung at every, after every verse? Is this call and response where the men sing out the beginning and the women answer in reply at the end? Oh, I don't know, but to picture what's happening here. Timbrels and dancing and singing and Joy cometh in the morning. There has been so much darkness and death behind them. But now that they find themselves on the other side of this Red Sea, the sea of faith returning to the full, there's nothing but rejoicing. I wish we could stop there and just call it a day. I wish Israel had just stayed in that spiritual state and held on to the feelings that they were rejoicing over. Unfortunately, just one verse later, 22, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, how long do the Lord's songs of praise echo in our minds? How long do we gratefully rejoice in the blessings God has given us before we start to forget them? Now here it's been three days and they find no water. And about how long can we survive as human beings without water? Yeah, about three days. They are now at the end of their existence, the end of their rope, and they let Moses know about it, sadly. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. I mean, Mara means bitterness. So I guess they should have seen this one coming. It's like the Dead Sea. It doesn't exactly hold out hope for a great uh, seaside resort. I actually had some fun with this and was looking up negative place names. And there's all kinds of places you wouldn't want to settle. Places like Boring, Oregon or Dull, Ohio. If you think that's bad... 
Flea Hill, Delaware, Mosquitoville, New Hampshire. Maybe that's where you get scratch ankle, Alabama. <laughs> you moved from one to the other and you got, you got bitten and now you're just scratching. Sounds like the, the lice or the flies that, were, that Egyptians were dealing with. Uh, Booger Hole, West Virginia. Yeah, I don't think I'll move there. Satan's Kingdom, Massachusetts. Huh. How will we react to places like that? And here they are. Wait, you brought us to a place called Mara? We're thirsty and you bring us to a place of bitterness? Well, what, did you think it was going to be smooth sailing the whole rest of the way forward? I've eliminated your past. But that doesn't mean you're completely sanctified. New beginnings still lead to new tests and new trials. New challenges to grow from. Well, verse 24, the people murmured against Moses. And we better start getting used to that because it keeps happening. They said, what shall we drink? As if this was Moses' fault. He's been leading them every step of the way, but I'm as thirsty as you are. I don't have access to some special bottomless canteen. Why are you murmuring against me as if I had the power to change things? So what's Moses do? What he always does. He cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Talk about another beautifully symbolic miracle. You have water in a place that is bitter by name. I mean, it's so bad that they named the place for it. You're not going to find much water here. Not, nothing worth drinking. And yet you take some tree and throw it in and it becomes sweet? Well, let's rename the place. This is no longer Mara. This is sweet water. In fact, the sweet water river is what saved the saints as they were crossing uh, their wilderness to get to the promised land. They, for the most part, had to, to follow the sweet water. Well, they could rename this place right here now. All because of a tree? Now, this must be one miraculous tree. And sure enough, it was. But what kind of tree could possibly have fruit sweet enough to make bitter things sweet themselves? Sound like the tree of life? White above all that is white, pure above all that is pure, but sweet above all that is sweet? This is such a beautiful metaphor, a type and shadow of the tree of life, the love of God. And yes, he will change your bitter moments into sweet memories, knowing that he has delivered you. In verse 26, the Lord said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. I just healed those waters. And if you look to me, you'll be healed as well. You've been through all kinds of, well, the Egyptians went through all kinds of things. You were from a safer position looking on. But if you want to remain safe from those kinds of plagues and promises, then what do you do? You hearken and obey. You give ear and keep my commandments. He repeats that twice. In some ways, since I'm the healer, he's introducing himself, are you going to follow doctor's orders? Will you listen to my directions and will you put them in practice. Then verse 27, the chapter ends. They came to Elim where there were 12 wells of water and three score and 10 palm trees. And they encamped there by the waters. Here they could definitely 
rest more assured. Uh, they're not looking around for trees to throw into the waters of Mara. There are 12 wells here. There's palm trees, 70 of them, so we can, we can eat. God is providing. But again, it makes you wonder, uh, how long is this going to last? There are times of feast and times of famine. There are times of plenty and times of thirst. I guess the question for us is, will we remember the good times and hold on to them long enough to get through the, the lean times? Or, like Pharaoh's dream, will the seven years of famine swallow up the seven years of plenty until they're completely forgotten? How long will we hold on until faith comes rushing back? Well, turn the page to chapter 16, and sadly, this one doesn't last that long either. Verse 1, they took their journey from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. Now, I know this is just in English. This only works in English translation, but wilderness of sin? <laughs> Could you make it any more obvious? Uh, even after our baptism in the Red Sea, we still have a wilderness of sin stretching out before us. Before we can get to a place where God can truly give us the law that will help us navigate our way to the promised land. Uh, baptism was the beginning of the path, not the end. It's the gate that puts us on the journey back to God. And stretching before us is this wilderness of sin. In verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Which seems to happen whenever anything goes wrong. And before you judge Israel harshly, or Laman and Lemuel harshly, since they do the same thing, go on trek and, and see how you do. Okay, If you've ever been with the youth on trek as a ma or pa, or been just a, a trek pioneer yourself, it's amazing how the layman and lemuel in all of us wells up a bit uh, when things get hard. And so here it's hard, and Israel is murmuring. Verse 3, the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full, for he have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, Israel, first it was thirst and now it's hunger. But the moment your physical needs are not being met, you lose hope, you lose faith, you lose your memory that God has been providing for you all along. Just hold out hope. It'll be okay. In some ways, I wonder if this repeated, uh, these challenges are meant to teach Israel something. Not just that God provides for your needs, but that you really do have needs that need to be provided for. You see, for the last four centuries, you've been in bondage. And it's going to take a lot more work to get Egypt out of Israel than it did to take Israel out of Egypt. Overcoming, again, we saw the codependence. We saw the, the lack of faith or a desire for freedom. In some ways here, it's, it's like, wait, you... You're missing the flesh pots? You prefer flesh pots to freedom? You're worried about, you, you got to have bread to the full. You'd rather, you're okay with bondage as long as bread comes along for the ride? Seriously? Oh, Israel. There are far more important things worth hungering and thirsting over. As Jesus would say, we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who do. They will be filled. And Israel, I'm just wanting you to see what 
spiritual famine feels like. You probably, it's been so long, you don't even know that you're emaciated. But if you'll suffer physical versions of that, then perhaps it will wake you up to realize just how much sustenance you need to provide for your spirit. I hope that crosses our mind every fast Sunday. It's like, wow, my body doesn't do well when I don't keep feeding it. Well, you think? Your spirit's the exact same way. You who are endowed, if you think about your temple covenants and reminders of those covenants that you wear, then every time your body asks for food, I hope we realize that our spirit's probably been asking for its own version for a while and that we need to feed it just as frequently. We promised that we would and need to keep that promise. In verse 4, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. So here's going to be some baby steps. We're slowly weaning you off of Egypt. And so I will provide, and I'm going to do it every single day, but there will be some strings attached. I will rain bread from heaven. And you saw the hail back in Egypt. I can rain quite a bit. Uh, I will provide for your every need, but there's going to be a test attached so I can try you. Here's what this trial will look like. Verse 5, it shall come to pass that on the sixth day, they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. You see, there's going to be a certain allotment given, and a certain allotment required. How hungry are you going to be every day? And I'll provide for you. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I only need you to get me through today because tomorrow I'll have another chance to ask for more help. Same for you Israelites. This bread I will rain from heaven will, get, will be your daily bread. And it will be enough to get you through each day. But the day before Sabbath, I'll double it. So that on the Sabbath, you don't have to work to gather this bread from heaven. My wife's told me that when she was young, she hated that old primary song, Saturday is a special day. Remember that one? Saturday is a special day. It's the day we get ready for Sunday. Because for her, it was like, Sunday's the worst. I can't do anything. And now you're even encroaching on my Saturday? I, have to, I need a, another day to get ready for the day I can't do anything? Please. Uh, can we confine, <laughs> confine Sunday to itself instead of bleeding out and ruining other days too? Well... Thankfully, my wife's outgrown that, and so have I. I felt similar. Maybe you did too. But Israel, will Saturday be a special day? Now, it's going to be Friday for them since Saturday is their Sabbath. But the point is, will you use the day before Sabbath as a preparation for the Sabbath? At least not pushing oxen into the mire the day before Sabbath so you have something to do and occupy yourself. No, there's better ways to use the Lord's time on the Lord's day. In the New Testament, there's even a point where it's talking about the day before Sabbath, and it simply calls it the preparation. So how's that for the primary song? No, we don't even call it Saturday anymore. Let's just call it the preparation. How prepared are we? And for them, that string attached to the bread from heaven is the commandment to do with it each day what God intends. And honor... Not just the daily bread, but the day I won't give you bread. At least not the physical kind. 
This is John 6 in a nutshell, when Jesus is giving his bread of life discourse and saying to them, yes, your ancestors ate the bread from heaven and now they're dead. I'm the true bread from heaven. And if you'll eat my body and drink my blood, if you'll participate in my form of the Passover, if you'll trust the kind of Messiah I've been sent to be, not to free you from Rome, but to free you from sin, then you will eat and never hunger. You will drink and never thirst again. That's the promise of the Lord. Honestly, Sabbath is one of the best days to feel the reality of those promises. And if we will truly trust that God will give us enough the other days to cover our needs on the Sabbath, he knows we get hungry that day too. He's not starving them that day. He's giving them enough the day before. That's the promise of verse 5. I'll give you twice as much. Do we trust that God can do more with our six days than we can do with our seven? Do we trust that God can do more with our 90% income than we could do on our own with 100%? Whether it's time or money, since time is money, do we trust the Lord with those things? And are we willing to make that kind of sacrifice? I remember my attitude completely changing in college one day, uh, one semester. It was a Saturday night. Uh, Monday, I had this big history paper due, and I wasn't done. And I was working so hard trying to get it finished. And... I had earlier been told by a general authority that if you'll keep the Sabbath day holy, even in college, uh, and try to withhold from studying that day, doing homework, do you trust the Lord? Will he, he'll bless you in your grades. And I trusted him. But that weekend, I was truly put to the test. But it was interesting because the time, by the time Saturday midnight rolled around, and I still wasn't close enough to being done to take Sunday completely off, I was still so sick of that paper that the striking of the clock at midnight felt like get out of jail free. It was like free at last, free at last. I don't, it wasn't me like, oh, I can't do my paper. It was you paper, you can't get me. I'm on home base. I'm on the Sabbath. And I blissfully walked away from it and for the next 24 hours felt totally free. And only about 24 hours, because I woke up at the, you know, shortly after midnight on Monday to get back to my paper. And thankfully, yes, did finish it in time. But to see the Sabbath as a sanctuary, that's the way, the way Judaism approaches it. We'll talk about this more when we get to the Ten Commandments. But I do love the thought here of, it's a matter of trust. Do you trust that you can do more with the time God has given you, so that you don't feel tempted to take away the time that God has reserved for him? Because even that's meant to bless us as well. Now in verse 6, Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At even then ye shall know that the Lord hath brought you out from the land of Egypt. And in the morning then ye shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that ye murmur against us? Did you catch all those pronouns? Why are you complaining against us? Who do you think we are? This is all about the Lord. And he will show himself. Your murmurings are against him. And he's aware of it. Hopefully the Israelites are starting to second or to rethink this. Like, okay, I probably shouldn't be complaining against Moses and Aaron. Don't shoot the messenger. What's my relationship with God? Then verse 8, Moses said, This shall be 
when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So there he is hammering those pronouns hard. It's not about us. It's about him and your relationship to him. What are we supposed to do? But what will God do for you? Well, in the evening, he'll give you meat. In the morning, he'll give you bread. Just what you are asking for. In fact, just what you were murmuring about, missing out on the flesh pots of Egypt. God can come through with that. The bread to the full, well, you'll be full of this bread. Verse 9, Moses spake unto Aaron, Say unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he hath heard your murmurings. Repent, in other words. That's what come near the Lord really means. Once you recognize you've been complaining against him, don't run away. Stop what you're doing, turn around and come so that you can be reconciled to him. He's the one that you you have offended. In verse 10, it came to pass as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. That's the same source of guidance that's been leading them through the wilderness. It's now going to be the source of their sustenance. God will provide And they're looking out into the wilderness for it. What had seemed before a place of absence is now going to become a place of presence. And the Sabbath can be that for us too. Uh, We can't do anything. Oh, that's where all the good stuff occurs. Absence becomes presence. In verse 11, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. It's not just the Egyptians that need to be reintroduced to me. In 13, it came to pass that at even the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. Now, the quails, that's obvious, the meat that he promised to give us at even, But in the morning, I thought you said there was going to be bread. There's just dew. What's up with that? Well, wait for it. Wait for it. Verse 14, when the dew that lay was gone up, so it's evaporated, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like a large loaf to me. As small as the hoarfrost on the ground? Hello. Hello. I mean, these are tiny snowflakes of sustenance. This is the particle of faith that Alma talked about, or those flakes of gold Elder Ballard mentioned in a conference talk years ago. Not some giant gold nugget. He didn't hit the mother load. It wasn't get rich quick, but flake by flake, this prospector filled his pouch with gold. And so can we. I mean, this might be a drop in the bucket, but it's a drop of oil that will ultimately fill your lamp and vessel. If you're a wise virgin, if you're not put off by the, the smallness of that, of that crumb, bread to the full is what God promised. And you can eat until you are totally satisfied. It's just going to take work to gather those grains. In some ways, that's, that's our spiritual life. 
in reality, that's our physical life as well. We just would prefer the, oh, the liposuction over the diet. We'd prefer the steroid over the exercise regimen. We would prefer the one-and-done spirituality. And just becoming all that God intends for us and then kind of freeze frame right there. But that's not how it works. It is a line upon line, precept upon precept approach. And what that's doing is changing our character. Not just our quantity of blessings. I, I assure you that verse by verse, even word by word, you can amass enough manna, and that's what we're about to see it's called, to, to last a lifetime. Actually, better said, to last the day. This daily bread for this day's need. But there will always be more tomorrow. We just have to pay the price to find it. In verse 15 was where we see the name. When the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. They didn't know what it was, so they called it manna. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Now the irony here is, manu means, what is it? And so it's funny when it's like, what is it? Manu, oh, mana. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, uh -huh, that's what it is. Well, I asked the question. Yeah, and that's the answer. What? What is this stuff? Uh-huh. What? Okay, whatever. Ooh, that's a good name for it, too. <laughs> Just eat it, okay? Just gather and enjoy. In some ways, it's a lot like, well, what's your name? Uh, well, I am that I am. Manna, well, it is what it is. That's true of the spiritual gifts that God gives us, too. That we can't always quantify it. We can't always put a, a finger on it. We can't weigh it and measure it and, and give it a, a very specific name. It just has to be experienced. This food has to be tasted. But if you'll taste it, if you'll eat it, you'll never hunger again. If you'll drink what the Lord offers, you'll never thirst. These are the gifts. Take the manna. Call it whatever you will. Now, verse 16, he continues explaining this. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating. So however much you need to survive. An omer for every man according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. Even with physical food, we don't all have the same needs. We have different metabolisms. We have different body sizes. We have different appetites. And when it comes to spiritual things, what's enough for one person might not be enough for another. And so we have to be able to take our own internal temperature. We need to be introspective enough to know, I need, I need more. My Sunday to Sunday kind of sustenance is insufficient. I need to study my scriptures every day. I need more than just one family prayer before we go to bed. What we're up against will help determine that. A lot of times in terms of food, your caloric intake, a lot of it depends on your caloric expenditure. How much are you burning? I've often used the windshield wipers as an analogy uh, that depending on how hard the rain's coming down, that determines how fast they need to be wiping. And I don't know about you, but if you're ever in a spiritual or a secular downpour and you are being bombarded with the philosophies of man or just temptation or trial, whatever it might be, then I need to crank up my windshield wipers and allow the spirit to wipe away the world and help me see things as they really are. And I'm going to need that frequently, lest I crash. Well, depending on how hungry your spirit is, 
we better be gathering those grains of manna. In verse 17, the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And that's how you know you got it right. There's no lack, but there's also no waste. Now that might be easier to quantify in terms of temporal things. This is a good example of the law of consecration, those verses. Uh, no lack and no waste. I have enough to meet my needs, and collectively we all do, because I can share with you in your need, or you can share with me in mine. Everyone according to their eating. You don't have to starve yourself, but neither do you have to stuff yourself unnecessarily. There will be enough for everyone. In verse 19, Moses said, Let no man leave of it till the morning. So we're getting more and more rules here. Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto Moses, <laughs> figures, but some of them left it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was wroth with them. Now notice, some of them left it, which lets us know that not everyone did. We can't just create a monolith out of ancient Israel and assume that everybody was the same. Again, their eating habits were different, and so were their spiritual strengths and weaknesses. Some followed God's direction to the T. Others, not so much. And those who gathered extra, why would they? And in some ways, the give us this day our daily bread is a hard thing. Because I have to trust that more will be coming tomorrow. I've talked about this in the past, that there's a difference between living next to a river, like the Nile in Egypt, like the Tigris or Euphrates in Babylon, uh, or living in a place like Israel without much water and not many rivers at all, which means you are praying for rain, literally. There's something powerful about that. You can start taking your water for granted when it flows past you every day down the river. But when you have to pray for rain, oh, you come to trust God day by day. And so if you could just amass and freeze dry your manna, if you could smoke it or salt it or somehow just lay it up in store, then great. I may not have to work so hard later on. But that doesn't work spiritually. And here it doesn't work physically. I used to do an object lesson with my seminary students where I'd invite a, a crazy kid up and have them brush their teeth in front of the class with a week's worth of toothpaste on the brush. I mean, they could barely close their mouth around it. There was so much bubbles coming everywhere, right? Drooling down their chin. It was hilarious. But the point was made that you can't save up scripture study and do it all at one, in one fell swoop. Nor can you go back and make up for lost time. No, that day your teeth just got dirty and you didn't brush. And we need to get into the habit of being consistent as well as intense. Those are the two verbs I always gave my students. Be consistently intense and intensely consistent in, in gathering this manna. Because otherwise, what happens? It starts to, to mold. It starts to stink. It begins to breed worms. Now, it's interesting because in the book of Job, worms will be, will be discussed in terms of death. Uh, that the worms are eating the decaying body. Well, to think about old, deceased spirituality. I sometimes joke that if the only spiritual experiences we have are old ones from our mission uh, that are deep-freezed and then thawed out when necessary, well, what kinds of experiences have we had with God more recently?
Because those old ones, sometimes they come across a little stinky, a little stale. They've been consumed, chewed on by the worms because there's no more life to them. You remember when Jesus warned us about laying up treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt. Well, there's the, the worms and the stinking manna. You can't store it like that. It needs to be eaten and turned into the energy with which we can serve our fellow man. In verse 21, more instructions. They gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. So the instruction there would be, those who seek me, seek me early. Now in that experience, it was time of day. Uh, it was dew to begin with, but then once the sun came out and the dew began to evaporate, it was manna that was left behind. But wait too long and that manna begins to melt and then you missed today's portion. Now, like I said, time of day was important early, literally in the day for them to gather their manna. For us, it may not necessarily be the morning. If you're not a morning person, then don't do your scripture study in the morning. You'll get nothing out of it. Uh, if you're a night owl, then that's a better time to study. However, just make sure whichever time of day works for you, that you make it work for you, that you stick to it. So when I say it needs to be early, I would say early on your to-do list or high on your list of priorities. Because it is amazing as the sun of our day comes out and begins melting away our best intent and we run out of time. It's like people who say, I didn't have enough money left over to pay my tithing. It's like, well, yeah, it's never going to be enough left over. But if you give God his due first, there'll always be enough left over for you. And that's true of time as well. Well, when it comes to giving God his due. Like I said, morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you choose to gather your spiritual manna, just make sure you do it or the sun will melt away your chance to do so. In verse 22, it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. So see, we're starting to do it right. We followed instructions this time. Then in verse 23, he, Moses, said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. So bake that which ye will bake today, seethe, in other words, boil, that which ye shall seethe, and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning, as Moses bade. And it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. So God is true to his word. I told you I would provide enough during the week so that you wouldn't have to gather on the Sabbath. You wouldn't have to work. You wouldn't have to worry. The Sabbath is supposed to be a gift. And I've already given you the gift in advance. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus would later say. And so for, for them to be able to gather all they needed, even to the point where he says, if you're going to bake it or boil it, do that on the day before the Sabbath too, and it will, it will remain. It's nice to know, by the way, that you can bake manna and boil manna. You can probably barbecue manna. I, there's probably a manna helper section in the Hebrew aisle of the supermarket. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do with it, and that's good too, because, well, there are so many different ways to feed our souls spiritually. We need never grow stagnant or bored with a single means. Oh, developing other spiritual gifts, leaning into 
other opportunities. Serving in new callings. Oh, the Lord is shaking up the recipe uh, when it comes to manna all the time. And he's always giving us enough to meet our needs. So don't, don't feel like you have to stockpile it. Now, that's, that's not, not to say that you shouldn't save up for a rainy day or be prepared for emergencies. Uh, if nothing else, the story of Joseph taught us that, right? But they're trying to learn, God's trying to teach them how they're supposed to navigate this as far as keeping the Lord's day separate from the others, distinct. Now, in verse 25, Moses says, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Six days ye shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. So not only are you not working on that day, well, God's not working on that day either. At least not working as far as distributing the manna in the morning. Give him some time off. Now, the fact that even he rested on the seventh day of creation, not that he was tired, but that he had carved out space to recreate. In some ways, what was he creating on day seven was himself. And that's true of us, spiritually speaking. In verse 27, not everybody listened. It came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for together, and they found none. Duh, they'd been told. There are disobedient among the obedient. There are tares among the wheat. And there are murmurers aplenty. Although there are others who are doing their very best to follow the counsel of Moses. In verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, ye is the plural. It's, it's the y'all, if you're from the south, or the all y'all, even better. Now, ye... I thought we just said it was only some. And he's talking to Moses when he says, y'all. Well, I guess we are in this together. If we're trying to establish Zion and be one heart and one mind, then I am my brother's keeper. And I need to be my, on my very best to try to lead by example, to cry repentance in kind and understanding ways, in hopes that we can collectively enter the promised land. Since that is, that's a collective goal. In verse 29, the Lord says, See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, which would have been an amazingly new experience for people who had spent the last four centuries in slavery. Wait, we're allowed to take a day off? Yeah, you really are. That's one of the purposes of this day, to remember me, and do the spiritual work that the weak sometimes get in, gets in the way of. In verse 31, it's repeated, The house of Israel called the name thereof manna. That, what is this, ended up sticking. And it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Now, coriander seed is small, which again, this small like the hoarfrost, these flakes of gold, it's white, and you know, there's not very many foods that appear naturally in white, like cauliflower, I guess. But for it to be pure above all that is pure, which goes along well with the next phrase, it's like wafers made with honey. Ah, so it's sweet above all that is sweet. We already saw a tree that brings sweetness to bitter water. Well, now we are seeing another gift from God that appears outside your tent every morning, just waiting to be gathered that will also bring sweetness and purity. 
into your life. In verse 32, Moses says, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness, which I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Talk about the ultimate souvenir. Take an omer, give us this day our daily bread, an omer was a daily ration, and, and store it. Keep it for your generations so that posterity can look at this and realize, oh, to borrow from the Book of Mormon, how merciful the Lord hath been unto our fathers. To be able to see that and remember that. Now, this is going to go against the, the, what God had said earlier, as far as you can't save any of this beyond the day that it's given you. Well, this is the exception to that rule, because this is one worth preserving for posterity. Those who, of you who have been with me for a while, uh, hopefully remember this analogy. So when Sister Camilla Kimball talked about the shelf, where she keeps the questions that she can't answer, yeah, that's a famous thing among uh, former Latter-day Saints and members who are struggling. They know that, but they often talk about the shelf collapsing. Well, I remember years ago, it, as I was pondering that analogy and coupling it with the ninth article of faith that speaks of revelation past and present and future, it hit me there are three shelves, not just one. And the one Sister Kimball was referring to was the third. Many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God that are yet to be revealed. Well, that means shelf number one is revelation past, and shelf number two is revelation present. Well, what I love about what they're being asked to do is put some manna on shelf number one. Gifts of God that he has given in the past. And what's that for? By reminding ourselves of all that God has done for us in the past, everything on shelf number one, dusting it off, keeping a good inventory, uh, strolling down memory lane and, and making an active effort to remember. Well, what does that do? It reassures us that God does in fact reveal, that he does provide for our every need. And with that faith, then of course, shelf number three is revelations yet to come, as opposed to questions that will never be answered. That's what makes our shelf collapse. When we lose hope that God will ever take anything out off that shelf and move it down to shelf number two, where he can reveal us or reveal it to us in the present. You see, to me, if I have a, a, a well-dusted and well-inventoried shelf one, it leads to a well-stocked shelf two of things that God has brought down from shelf three to begin teaching me, which I then move down to shelf one to join its, its friends from, from previous revelations, carving out space for God to reveal something new to me. And shelf three to two and two to one, and it just, that's the process of, of growing up in God, of learning from the Lord. And what the Israelites are being asked to do is keep some manna on shelf one. Do you have memories of miracles that God has performed in your life? that you can keep on shelf one? Can you keep a pot worth of the blessings of God to reassure you that there will yet be more blessings forthcoming and that he who provided for our ancestors will provide for us and for posterity? In fact, the next verse, when Moses turns to Aaron and gives him those instructions, 
Take a pot, put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. Same thing. But then notice this last line. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now that last line must have been written after the fact, because the testimony that's being referred to there are the tablets of stone that God, that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. So we'll have to wait until we get to the Ten Commandments to see that. But that is the testimony. It's also known as the covenant. And that covenant was put into a box, an ark, which is the ark of that covenant. And what Moses is telling Aaron to do is, right next to that testimony, before it, put this pot of manna and store it in the ark of the covenant. We'll see later that the Ark of the Covenant actually contains three things. The greatest artifacts in Israelite history, the tablets of stone, the pot of manna, and the rod of Moses slash Aaron. We'll talk more about that as we go on. But what's amazing to me here is to keep the pot of manna there. It's never going to, to grow old. It's never going to get stale or, or breed worms or stink. No, because this is not being stored for myself in, in, in stockpiling things. No, this is laid up to honor God and to remind my fellow man that God will bless and, and preserve us. It's part of his covenant. In fact, the fact those two things go side by side in the ark, the law of the Lord and the blessings of God, you can't have one without the other. I think too often all we want in our ark is the manna. Give us the blessing. Shower it down. Bread from heaven. And we're not realizing that it's part and parcel of the covenant. God feeds us, provides for us because he's promised to do so. But do we keep our promise to obey him? We need to keep in mind what's in that ark and keep our covenants. Remember our testimony. The chapter then ends in 35 and 36 with the children of Israel eating manna 40 years until they came into a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. And then one last thought. Oh yeah, an omer is a tenth part of an ephah. I had to throw that in just to make sure we clarified the quantities there. But I love that, that, line, that phrase, that looking back, again, this would have been written after the fact as well, that for the next 40 years you're going to eat this stuff. No wonder it's good that we get to boil and, and, and seethe and barbecue and everything else, okay? Uh, but God will provide all the way up to the promised land. And once we get there, oh, a land flowing with milk and honey. But then again, the manna does taste sweet as honey. This is a preview of coming attractions. And the times where we taste experience, internalize the Holy Ghost, that is a, a preview. Paul calls it the earnest of our inheritance. It's the down payment. And when you feel the Spirit, that is just a hint, a foretaste of all that we will partake of in the kingdom of God. Now, chapter 16 was all about God sustaining his people. We then turn to chapter 17, and it's the story about God's people sustaining his prophet. This is a famous uh, story in the book of Exodus, and one that I hope 
we think of every April conference when we raise our arms to the square to decide to sustain prophets, seers, and revelators that God has placed before us. A story you may be familiar with. Verse 1, let's see how it unfolds. All the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. Uh-oh. Well, yes is what's about to happen. No water. Now we've been through this before. Three days in, right? And the Lord provided miraculously a, a tree that could turn bitter into sweet. So we're going to remember, right? Uh, we've had manna every morning and God continues to prove himself. And so we're good. Well, not so much. Verse 2, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And again, that personal pronoun. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. I've, I'm not the one who's been delivering you. He has. I'm not the one who's been providing for you. He has. He deserves all the credit. He could add, I don't deserve this blame. <laughs> but interesting, the word there, to chide, it means to quarrel or to contend. Laman and Lemuel were experts at it. To tempt there, when he says, why are you tempting the Lord? That actually means to test or to try. Why are you testing the Lord? Or maybe more accurately, why are you trying his patience? The next verse, the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Wow, to kill us? We're going back to the same old problems. We might as well have died back in Egypt. Or now we're going to just die in the wilderness? No. Please, think about all that God has done. We have proved him in days that are past. Just be patient. Now, I, we need to be careful before we jump to pass judgment upon these Israelites. Because like I said, if you've been on trek, then you can probably feel for them here. Interesting word that's been coined more recently. If you're angry because you're hungry, then you're hangry. And these Israelites are hangry. Or whatever word you can come up with that combines thirst and anger. I guess the question is, how do we respond when, when things are hard? It's one thing to be Christ-like when all is well. It's one thing to trust in God when the, the man is coming and the water's flowing. But in those moments where he seems to be absent or seems to be holding off on the blessings he typically sends so quickly, what will we do? I've heard it said that the times of greatest danger when it comes to committing sin or falling back into addiction is when they, they're called blast times. It's an acronym, B-L-A-S-T. And it stands for when you're bored, when you're lonely, when you're angry, when you're stressed, and when you're tired. I mean, think about how often you've probably apologized to your spouse or to your children by saying, I'm sorry, I was just really tired. Or I'm sorry, I'm just really stressed because of all this stuff that's going on at work. It's interesting. It's when push comes to shove. It's when our back's against the wall. It's when we're facing the Red Sea or, or a dry desert or, or an empty stomach. And times like that really do show us and others who we really are. The Israelites are failing this test. I, I fear that 
that we sometimes fail it too. But Moses responds, verse 4, crying unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And again, if they're accusing Moses of trying to kill them, then no wonder they're about ready to kill him, picking up their stones ready to throw. It's an interesting twist on the temptation Jesus faced in the wilderness about changing stones into bread. Well, there is no bread, and they're ready to pick up the stones and start throwing them. In verse 5, then the Lord says unto Moses, Go on before the people. Take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thine hand and go. So on the one hand, appeal to their leaders. Think about it, Moses. You're still a relative newcomer among them. You were, they may have remembered you as a boy and the, the boy wonder that they placed all their hopes in. But then 40 years passed and you only appeared for a brief moment, saving one Hebrew before you took off and were gone for another 40 years. This has been very, it's been a long time in coming and you haven't been here that long. And so the people that the Israelites trust most are their own local leaders, the elders of the tribes of Israel. So work with them, work through them. We're going to see more of that the very next chapter, in chapter 18. And also, not just appeal to their elders, appeal to their experiences. Appeal to their memory. Remind them of the rod of God. Here's another souvenir, something tangible, something visible, that hopefully will trigger a memory within them. Ah, that's right. God does work through this leader. We, we have evidence of that. Uh, another way of bringing something from shelf one up to shelf two, showing it to them to reassure them that shelf three blessings will be forthcoming. In verse six, the Lord continues, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, which is the same as Sinai. We're coming full circle here. Thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, since Horeb is Sinai, since we are coming full circle, think about the first time there was fire, burning bush. The second time there was water as he claved the rock. Both times it came miraculously. Fire was produced with no fuel actually burning. How's that possible? And water came forth where there was no water to be found. When God miraculously provides fire and water, we saw that as he protected Israel, right? With a wall of water, a wall of fire, and surrounded by that protective power, Israel was able to march forth. Well, once again, God is providing miraculously fire and water. And to add to the symbolism, this is water from the rock, Think of Christ as the rock. And when he was smitten, when he was pierced on the cross, as the spear pierced his side, out came blood and water. Water from the rock. In verse 7, he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing or trying or proving. They were testing, trying God's patience. Well, he was proving them who's going to pass. They also named it Meribah, which means strife or complaint, since that's what they were doing too. We keep seeing place names that, that remind people of their failings. It's unfortunate. 
But this place deserved those names because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Again, how could they still be wondering? Well, don't forget, they're still in their spiritual infancy. In fact, infants, it's interesting. I heard a psychologist talk about the game of peekaboo. And psychologically, what makes it so scary for a child, it's interesting that they're on the verge of either laughter or tears. And sometimes it's really hard to tell. And a lot of it depends on how quickly you jump back out from behind your hands. Now, since we're no longer infants, sometimes we wonder why peekaboo even works. Why does this baby think this is fun? Well, it's the complete shock and awe of disappearance. Uh, they, they don't quite understand the world yet. And so they see mom or they see dad. And then all of a sudden, hands go before their eyes and they, they can't see them, which means they must no longer exist. They have completely disappeared. And they start to get nervous. And then as mom or dad pops back into existence, ah, oh, okay you're still here. And there's this rush of relief that's vented in laughter. Now, I'm not saying God is playing peekaboo, but are we sometimes like the infant that the moment we can no longer see God's hand or feel his spirit, we just assume that he's ceased to exist? It's ironic. It's tragic, actually, how quickly we forget him We'll see this later in the book of Chronicles, where a, a man who has had God's guidance so frequently, so constantly, for a moment is missing it. But this fascinating verse, we'll, we'll see it later when we get there, but the verse says that God left him to try him, to see all that was in his heart. Oh, that's interesting. There are times where God holds back, hides behind the bush, crouches behind the rock and sees how we will respond. I think of that when I'm helping my children learn how to ride their bike. As soon as I let go of the, of the seat, will you keep pedaling? Because if you don't, then you're not actually learning to ride. And I'm just, I'm just propping you up the whole time. No, I'm trying to raise independent children. And so is God. So get past the peekaboo. Is God trying to train us to trust him, whether he's present or seemingly absent? Keep moving forward. Verse 8, then, the, the story shifts somewhat. We get a more tangible trial. It's one thing to just be wrestling with absence. Uh, there's no food, there's no water. But it's another thing to have an actual enemy bearing down upon you. That's what they faced with Pharaoh. But now that the Egyptians are gone, they're still not home free. As they're journeying through the wilderness toward the promised land, remember we said, we said that they would face the Edomites and the Moabites and the Canaanites? Well, here they're facing the Amalekites. In verse 8, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, Amalek was a grandson of Esau. This was a nomadic desert tribe. Uh, if there's water coming from the rock in Horeb, you can picture this might be a tribal contest over water rights. It's extremely valuable in the desert. But what happens? Verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, Ah, okay, now we see him enter the scene. And Moses tells him, Choose us out men 
and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now remember these three different groups. You have Joshua and the men of Israel who are fighting. You have Moses with the rod of God in his hand. And then you have Aaron, his brother, and Hur. Now, why keep these three distinct in our minds? Notice what happens next. Verse 11, the miracle. It came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, if you've ever been to a football game and talked about the 12th man, this is the ultimate 12th man here. 12th man is the crowd. You got 11 players on the field. Uh, does the 12th man actually do anything? Well, if you've ever been on the field with, without them, you miss them. That's the problem of an away game. The, the home court advantage or home field advantage comes because of the 12th man. And here's Moses on the mountaintop. As long as his hands are raised and they're seeing the rod of God, it's, is this rallying the troops? This is the king's coat of arms or insignia. This is the national flag. This is the chieftain's banner. In reality, this is the rod of God. And it has brought them out of Egypt. It has conquered the, the mighty Pharaoh. It's parted the waters. Will it save the day for them? They had faith, at least when they were seeing it. As soon as it went down and it looked like Moses was lowering the rod of God, then there went all of this home court advantage. There went the the sense that God would actually preserve them. Now, I've never been in a battle, but I assume they're typically fairly long affairs. And if you've ever had to keep your hands up for a long time, you're going to understand what happens next. Verse 12, but Moses's hands were heavy. Now, do we have any idea just how heavy the hands of God's prophets and apostles really are? I mean, those big red chairs we see in conference sure do look comfortable, but I doubt they're as comfy as they look. Uh, I've been in three different bishoprics, always as a counselor, always the bridesma bridesmaid, never the bride, and I'm totally fine with that. Uh, but even when the bishop is gone and I have to conduct, I make sure never to sit in his seat. If I'm using his office for interviews uh, or to run ward council or whatever, I never sit in his chair. Uh, I, just, I just want to make it very clear that the buck doesn't stop with me. Uh, I'm just a counselor. Now, in this case, the heavy hands of Moses, there was actually a talk that James E. Faust gave years ago when he was counselor to President Gordon B. Hinckley. And I remember being so struck by the emotion in President Faust's voice as he pled with the church to pray for the prophet specifically. And then he said this, choked, voice choked with emotion. No one fully knows, not even his counselors, and he was one of them at the time, how heavy his burdens are and how great his responsibility is. I have shared that quote with the bishops that I have served under, acknowledging to them that even I, as their counselor, have no idea, really, just how heavy the mantle is. 
The mantle of the prophet may look like fabric, but it sure feels like chain mail, I imagine. And this is a heavy burden that requires a lot of heavy lifting. And these are servants of God who have been serving for a lifetime. Heavy hands, you better believe it. So what happens? In verse 12, they, Aaron and her, his counselors, so to speak, took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. Oh, to rest upon the rock of our salvation. Now that's helpful, but <laughs> legs are stronger than arms, and my legs weren't really the, the weary part, okay? I appreciate the gesture, but I could use a little more help. Okay, then let's help with that. And so the verse continues. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Yeah, that's a long battle. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now think about the three groups again. And what is each group doing? You'd think the focus is on Moses, right? He's the one with the rod of God in his hands. He's the one bearing the mantle. And there he is lifting it. But think about it if Joshua and the men of Israel down in the valley looked up, saw Moses with rod extended and thought, oh, okay, we're good. We are good. The crowd is cheering. We've got home court advantage. Uh, Amalek, feel free to be defeated. I don't think that's a recipe for success. We still have to fight. And you and I in the valley below have a mission to perform. I know President Nelson is performing his. I know President Oaks and President Irene, and the Quorum of the Twelve and the Quorums of the Seventy are, are serving faithfully, heavy hands notwithstanding. But you and I, under our local Joshuas, are we fighting with all our heart, might, mind, and strength? Because if not, then no amount of rod holding on the mountaintop will ensure our victory. We must be anxiously engaged. Now, how about Aaron and her? You can picture them seeing poor Moses with heavy hands and saying, well, we, there's three of us, why don't we just tag team? And Aaron says, well, I've used the rod at times as well. Why don't I just spell you for a while and take it from Moses and hold it up himself? Well, no, that's not their role. We studied this last year in the Doctrine and Covenants, that some of the revelations given to the counselors in the first presidency were told to be, they told them, be faithful in counsel and stand in the office to which you have been appointed, which is a step below the office that the prophet was appointed to. Okay, Know your place. And Aaron and Hur did. We cannot bear your burden. We can't take the mantle from you but we can help you bear it well. And so here's Moses doing his part. You see Aaron and her doing their part. You see Joshua and the army below doing theirs. And if that's the case, then how can the kingdom of God not conquer? They did. Verse 14, the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. This is worth recording. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That last line's interesting. The day will come where the Amalekites are completely obliterated. And unfortunately, 
or, or fortunately, when an enemy is gone, they tend to be forgotten. Now, the unfortunate part of that is, have you also forgotten the deliverance from that enemy that God provided? Because you can't afford that. You need to dust off shelf number one. And so we're next to the pot of manna, uh, maybe some stones from the bottom of the Red Sea that would have been way too deep to, to scuba dive for. Uh, maybe some, oh, think of souvenirs from each of the ten plagues. Some hyssop with some dried lamb's blood on it. Uh, some unleavened bread. Whatever it is that's going to help you remember, right alongside that in shelf number one, keep a record of this battle. Remind Joshua of it. Remind the people of it. Because long after the Amalekites have faded from memory, the power of God needs to still be fresh on the mind. Re record it and rehearse it. Tell your children and your children's children these incredible histories of the hand of God. In verse 15 and 16, then, our study ends with Moses building an altar and calling the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jehovah Nissi, by the way, means the Lord is my banner. And again, that's like the, the rod that Moses was lifting. High on the mountaintop, a banner is unfurled. Something to remind us that God rules over all and that his will will be done if we'll simply follow him and follow his prophet. You see, that was Pharaoh's problem last week. Didn't know God and didn't know God's prophet. That was Israel's problem repeatedly in this week's material. Do you know God and trust him? And please, do you know Moses and do you trust him? Or is it simply murmuring and complaining against Moses whenever your temporal needs don't seem to be met? You see, here we are wandering in our wilderness. The wilderness of sin. Great imagery there. And we have a choice Will we define ourselves by our experiences at Mara and Meribah, complaining against God, testing his patience? Or will they be defined by our experiences at Rephidim? You see, Rephidim comes from the word meaning to spread. So there's Moses spreading out his arms. There is the banner of Jehovah being spread out before them. It also comes from a word meaning to support to sustain, we could say, uh, like the back of a chair or like the, the base of a chair, like the rock that Moses was sitting on. There's Rephidim for you. Are we supporting God's chosen servants? Are we sustaining them or are we chiding with them? The choice is ours. Mara, Meribah, Rephidim, where would you rather set up camp? There's actually a fascinating verse in... Second Nephi chapter 1, when Lehi is nearing the end of his life and is warning, especially Laman and Lemuel, about being a little too much like their Israelite ancestors and murmuring all along their journey to the promised land and not just forgetting God, but also fighting against their leader, Nephi. This is what dad says to them. Rebel no more against your brother 
And then notice this amazing list. One, whose views have been glorious. The visions that Nephi has had, or in Moses' case, the burning bush, the visions of glory. Number two, who hath kept the commandments from the time that we left Jerusalem, the undeviating obedience of Nephi, and the faithfulness of Moses every step of the way. Number three, and who hath been an instrument in the hands of God. Nephi was in obtaining the brass plates, in going back to find Ishmael and his daughters, in building the ship, in you name it. Nephi was an instrument in God's hands, and Moses was as well, through all ten plagues and beyond. Number four, in bringing us forth into the land of promise. Nephi had accomplished that. Moses would get them to the, to the promised land as well. Five, were it not for him, we must have perished with hunger in the wilderness. There's Nephi, despite his broken bow, making a new one, carving out of a straight stick an arrow, and then going out with the guidance of a liahona that he helped bring back into proper working order, finding food to feed his family. Well, how about Moses with water from the rock, with manna from heaven? He's been providing all along. God has through him. Nevertheless, Lehi says, ye have sought to take away his life. And Laman and Lemuel were guilty of plotting Nephi's death, and we just saw the Israelites thinking about stoning Moses as well. So finally, Lehi says, yea, he hath suffered much sorrow because of you. Gives you a glimpse into the heart of God's servants. And to think of what Nephi must have been feeling for Laman and Lemuel, not anger, but grief and sorrow, and the same thing here with Moses. Oh, how long, how long will you not understand what I'm trying to do for you? I will keep seeing more of this the next few weeks, sadly. Of all the weight, the added burden that Israel continues to place upon Moses' already heavy hands. In some ways, I wish that they could understand and wish that we could understand the reality of this great verse from Second Chronicles. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Now those are words to live by. If you want to be established, rock-solid foundation, then believe in God. But if you want to prosper, which suggests growing up above the foundation, going outside and beyond it, navigating life, then to prosper, you need to believe God's prophets because those are the lively oracles that show us the way to live God's will in our day. Now, I know that prophets sometimes give us hard sayings. Who can hear them? That's Christ's bread of life discourse again. And as a result, there are disciples who choose no longer to follow. I actually wonder if society in the church has overcorrected that perhaps a prior generation was overly reliant on the words of prophets to the point of not thinking sufficiently for themselves. But as is often the case with uncoupled contraries, if one generation is, is off on one extreme, then a coming generation won't just correct, they will overcorrect and end up on the other extreme. And I do sometimes worry as I look at my students, the rising generation, are they living lives independent of prophets and apostles. 
uh, their anti-institutionalism or their anti-authoritarianism? Is it getting in the way of, of prospering through believing in prophets of God? They'll listen when they say good things and when times are, are easy. But do we see God behind the prophets even when those words are harder? When they go against our preconceived notions or, or the philosophies that the world would have us espouse? I just want to bear you my testimony of the Moseses and the Aarons and the Hurs, the Joshuas, that God has placed to lead his people, Israel. Perfect? No. Neither was Moses. We saw some of those failings, those, that sense of inadequacy, some frustration at times. But divinity poking through their humanity, shining brilliantly beyond it, definitely. And I pray that you see that when we look at prophets and apostles today. That was Stephen's concern that we talked about last week. That will you reject Jesus the way you re rejected Moses? Or us, will we reject the Lord's servants, as ancient Israel so often murmured against Moses? I testify that God, who speaks through those servants, is still the God of the Exodus. He's still the God of the Red Sea. He is the provider of manna from heaven and the rock out of whom flows the living water. I testify that if we will come unto him, we will eat the bread of life and we will drink the living water. And if we will come and partake of that from him, then we will never hunger and never thirst again.